Hey guys, so I'm going to apologize in advance. Uh, I'm actually recording this about a week after I was supposed to because I got hit with massive illness. Still not 100% recovered. I'm going to be doing the best I can to push this out as best as I can for you guys. And I've been kind of ready to go on this for about a week. So I apologize for... Ugh, I apologize for my voice. I hope you'll still find it acceptable because... I really need to get this done. I, I really need to move on to my next project. Now, I mentioned that the first game was the one I had enjoyed the most so far. And having gone through this one, I can kind of see why I had that impression. Not that I think Zenosaga 3 is definitively worse than 1, but there's a lot of things it does that makes me just kind of go, hmm. And even though we know why, and I'll talk more about the structure of the narrative later, there's a lot of sections where it's just kind of like, okay, and why is this happening now? And and why are you putting, what, you had to cut corners, why did you put this into it? You know, there, there's several sections where I'm just kind of, eh? <clears throat> but as far as the gameplay, at first, like for the first decent or early chunk of the game, I was actually with it. I was enjoying this game. Oh, yeah. I was enjoying the actual gameplay of this one a lot more than the previous two. It kept a lot of the things I liked about 2, uh, the status effects and the, the terrain stuff you could do. And it kept some of the decent stuff of the first game, other than the buyable mech nature thing, which I really did like. But it wasn't quite as grindy as the first game. So I'm like, yeah, this is great. Then I got to my first major boss battle. And the game just slewed to a crawl. No, I'll freely, I'll freely admit, maybe I'm just an idiot. Maybe I just have no idea what I was doing. That's totally possible. You know, get good, etc., etc. But for me, basically every major boss fight boiled down to block to build combo, 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 combo. And then just over and over. The first fight this really struck for me was the Virgil fight, actually, which I know was a fair way into the game. But fighting him in his uh, Dan or whatever the name of his mech was was just... <sighs> and I noticed that... There's a lot more emphasis on the mecha in general in this one. We spend a huge amount of time fighting in or fighting against ESs. Uh, obviously not 100% of the combat. We still have the ground-based combat. But it felt like they were like, oh, crap, right. We need to have the giant mecha. Here, go, go, go. <laughs> and I'm not really sure what I thought about that. I've said before I don't really care for these type of mecha designs. Just a preference thing. Just not my thing. Very coffee. Um, so there wasn't really a lot of cool factor for me personally. And so in the end, it boiled down to just kind of being like, um, it felt like they were attempting to make it feel cool while still trying to make it feel balanced and didn't quite manage either as well as they could have. It's not, again, it's not actively bad. That's not what I'm trying to say. I just didn't quite get into it. And again, I felt like the combat just slogged at certain points. It doesn't help that certain um, uh, ether drive abilities just were stupid overpowered on this one. Firebolt 3, Thunderbolt 3, Firebolt 3, Thunderbolt 3. Okay, boss is dead. <laughs> That's ground-based, obviously. Um, I also noticed that this game did another thing which really kind of dragged. I mean, it took me a while to really cognate why it was pissing me off. Because I noticed after virtually every boss fight, I was just kind of like, ugh, after the end of it. And I thought maybe it was just because of the, the combo build-up thing I mentioned earlier. But the real problem, for me, as a gamer, is that so many of the bosses you defeat, and then after that, there's a cutscene where they're just like, eh. Like, they're not damaged. They're fine. 
You did nothing to them. Now, I know that that makes sense in lore in several cases. I mean, if you're fighting a testament, you shouldn't be able to do any real damage to a testament. That's not that's due to the nature of what they are. I already talked about that back in 2. So that makes sense. But from a gameplay perspective, that's not fun to me. It's not fun to give me a boss battle, which I have to win, which I have to defeat, and then at the end of it, tell me flat out to my face, that was meaningless. You did nothing to the guy. Doing that once or twice is kind of, okay, sure, I can accept that. But they did it over and over and over and over in this game. It, To be completely blunt, the impression I got was, we need a boss battle here. Like, we, like I almost felt like they had a quota of how many boss battles needed to be in the game. And so here's a boss battle, here's a boss battle, here's a boss battle. Even though story-wise, us fighting them really does not matter in almost every case. Sadly, I don't have a lot else to say about the combat of this one, or the gameplay. I did like the skill branching tree thing. Uh, it brought to mind classes, and I do love a good class system in just about any RPG. I wish there was a little bit more variety in being able to stretch out, because everything I read up on this, this could be misinformation, but everything I read as far as walkthroughs and, and game facts and whatnot, said that you really have to focus on one skill tree for any given character, and maybe dabble in the other one. So it's uh, that's okay. I'm still okay with that. I, I still like the idea of being able to customize my characters like that and pick their role, basically. So let's talk about the story. <sighs> Where to start? I've mentioned already that Xenosaga 3 was basically written and made by a slightly different team than 1 or 2. I already mentioned that. We also know that while Xenosaga 1 sold pretty well, you know, it was, it was a smash success, but it did sell reasonably well, Xenosaga 2 bombed, financially. No criticism of the game itself, that's, that's irrelevant. From a financial perspective, Xenosaga 2 did not do well. Ergo, Xenosaga 3, 4, and 6, or was it 3, 5, it's a guy, I actually can't remember right now, but anyways, the rest of the saga was basically cancelled, and instead they just made Xenosaga 3. Now, we all kind of knew this already. Pardon me one second. Now, we've all known that for years. That's old information. What really struck me, though, is I've always had the mental impression that they took the last three episodes it was supposed to be and smooshed them into one. But having replayed this with analysis mode on, I don't think that's actually really how they approached this. It feels like this is Xenosaga 3 right up until a certain point, and then the last few episodes were smashed into the last like hour of the game. That's how it actually feels, and it almost feels more jarring, really. <laughs> like, Like, out of nowhere. It's just like, all right, and then I'm here! And whatever, we'll cover that. We'll cover that when we get there. First thing I want to talk about is Shion. Why is she still the main character of this series? I know that sounds like a strange question. One of the recurring themes of the early part of Xenosaga 3 is how she's uh, falling behind. You know, she's doing her own thing with Scientia, or Scientia, they say it a couple different ways, and... She's not really a part of the events of the greater galactic community in a significant way anymore. She's basically left the plot, and yet we continue to play as her, 
for a decent period of time, until she finally basically gets shoved back into the main plot. Now, I know arguments could be made for why that is, and of course she's relevant to the overall story for reasons I'll get to in a second. But I really felt like this was a missed opportunity to make Shion... to basically embrace the idea they started there. The idea that Shion was the main character and now isn't. Like, that's a weird idea, I'm sure, but I don't see a lot of RPGs really try for that kind of approach to storytelling, especially in, in a linear, uh, uh, linear string continuity series of a, uh, of a franchise like this one. I also have to admit that for most of the early half, if not two-thirds of Xenosaga 3, I didn't feel like there really was a main character. And normally I would say that's a good thing. I'm actually a big fan of the ensemble cast concept. In other words, rather than Bob, you've got Bob and Bob 2 and Bob 3 and Bobina and Bobette, and, you know, right? You've got the whole group, and that's the main characters, this group. Each of them having, if not a literally exactly equal share, a, a, a relatively equal percentage of claim on main character. Each of them is well-invested and has screen time and development, blah, 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 blah. I love a good ensemble cast. But... I didn't really feel like most of the main characters in Xenosaga 3 mattered. And I hate to speak ill of this game, because I know this series is well-beloved, and I know that... I mean, even I enjoy this. This game actually made me cry twice. I'll tell you the moments when we get there. So it's not like I don't care, and it's not like I didn't enjoy it, but... I really feel like they just completely fumbled the characterization ball in this game. Let me give you a direct example of what I'm talking about. Yuriev, right? The guy who has been hinted at since the first game, really came in in the second game, and is basically the main villain of the third game. Not Sinosaga 3, I mean the third of the intended sixology. Like, you could tell Yuriev was supposed to be the main bad guy of what was supposed to be episode 3. And... He he's 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 a Captain Planet villain. There's no there's no nuance there. There's no depth. There's no development. We we get scenes where other characters explain his motivations to us, and then we get scenes where he explains the exact same thing to us. It's a it's a writing concept called on the nose, and what that means is when a character flat out you know, says not literally, but effectively turns to the camera and says, this is what I'm feeling right now. And I really felt it was just so ham-fisted that I was utterly uninvested. And he's the most egregious example of that, because it's like, I am evil, I am evil, I am evil. <laughs> and then it would cut away to, like, Junior talking to Momo or whatever, or Citrine, I guess, actually. And they're like, yes, you don't understand. He, he connected with Udu. And that filled him with utter fear and nightmarish terror. And it's like, well, why is none of that in him? There was a lot of that for all of the characters in this one. So many characters would say, I'm feeling such and such. And this is how I am. And sometimes other characters would say, they're feeling such and such. And this is how I am. But none of the characters felt like they actually moved. And Shion, up, getting back to her, of all people, should have had some kind of development in this game. Considering that she finally interacts with Kevin. But the whole Kevin thing was just, well, we'll get there when we get there. Or I suppose we could talk about it now. <sighs> uh, Kevin, 
as someone we've had hinted at since the first game, and it's been it's one, literally one of the first things when they're when they're ch- talking shop way at the very beginning of the first game, and Alan's like, you know, they're like, oh, Alan, you still have a crush on her? And he's like, yeah, but she still has a thing for Kevin, you know, as paraphrasing, right? That he has been in this game since pretty much the very beginning, so it's not exactly like this guy's coming out of nowhere. But he gets a lot of actual screen time in this game, and I don't just mean as the Red Testament, I mean as Kevin. And one of the things they do pretty well is they, they portray him as a terrible human being. Now, that's a good thing. I liked that because, and I mentioned this back in Zenosaga 2 as well, if you look at what he's saying, he comes across as basically a sociopath, someone who is utterly disconnected from his actions in, in a pretty horrible way. And we can see that even in his interactions with Shion. I'm with that. That's good. That's actually good characterization. And I, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed the idea that she has... so. She was infatuated with him, and he was obviously manipulating her. We'll get to that in a second. And so, you know, then he dies. He gets killed on purpose. He admits this is an old lady. He gets killed by Cosmos 1.0, you know, the prototype, and then moves on to become a testament. We also know that he has been part of Wilhelm's scheme since pretty much the beginning. He was his first testament this time around. Um, Actually, I guess Voyager would have been the first testament, wouldn't he? I'm sorry, never mind. Point being, <laughs> one of the earlier testaments, he's been, he's been behind a lot of this crap, and arguably has more of a claim on main villain than Yuriev does, even though Yuriev's been behind a lot of crap. Kevin has been directly involved with manipulating most of the major events of the main characters, as well as the plot. So he dies. And then she has a picture left in her mind. Now, I've talked about this concept before, and it is true in real life as well. Um, this is so easy to understand, too. Let's say you love someone. Let's say they love you back. Then you're separated for whatever reason. And I mean cannot communicate with them for a long period of time. You may, when you're with them, you may have acknowledged their flaws and their faults and the things that drove you crazy about them, you know, all those little things. It was still a net positive, but you had a more fleshed-out, nuanced picture of the person you actually loved. A few years' absence, now all you remember is that picture. All those negative parts, all the nuance and, and the depth of what that person was fades away into a caricature. And what's left in your mind is just the good parts. Right? This happened to Raynor over in StarCraft. He was like, wah, wah, to Kerrigan because he was without her for so long. You know, he, 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 <laughs> this, there's, there's, this is such an obvious logical thing. I feel stupid for explaining it. So it's very logical to me and sense-making that Shion would have would have had nothing left but this caricature of Kevin in her mind. The perfect, wonderful Kevin that she just she's still holding the torch for, basically. I like that. Then she meets Kevin, and he's still just as horrible of a human being as he ever was, and she decides to join him. And that was actually a good scene. I liked that. And I'm like, yes, God, because you could tell she was just wigging the hell out. And he it didn't help that he was actively manipulating her at the time, since you know the whole Time travel sequence. God, we'll get there too. And so, the reason I I keep adding this like asterisk to the end of my sentences is because while I liked everything they did with Kevin, um, I liked I liked the Gnosticization of his mother. That makes sense too. She obviously does not want to go because she's actively trying to save her son. So she has an active 
disagreement with sublimating into the collective unconsciousness. So that, so that makes sense. Um, so her Gnosticizing in front of him, um, his, his, his dialogue is just almost robotic. It's wonderful. Um, he, there's this scene where Roth, which is, of course, Kevin, comes down. And people, this is so wonderfully Kevin right here. People are actually pretty nice and relatively polite to him. And then he flat out says, no, I am here to, to come down on the losers. Like, he's just a dick about it. Again, it kind of gives me that sociopath uh, thing. And there's this scene where he's, as the rest testimony, he takes his mask off. And he says to Shion, I'm still me. It's still me. And you know what? I love that because I absolutely believe that. It is still Kevin. He was just always terrible. And, of course, in the time travel thing, he is incredibly rude to everyone, even Shion. And he is also just as much of a horrible person back then. Then, for absolutely no discernible reason, he suddenly decides to redeem himself in the encounter with Wilhelm. That's where they lose me. Like, this buildup of Kevin being this monster. Yeah. And Shion being torn because she can't reconcile the reality with the picture in her mind. Yeah, I'm with that. And then, no, I, I really do love Shion. What? I will stop you, Wilhelm. What? This is where we're going to get into speculating. And I would, as ever, love to hear your guys' thoughts. I personally don't think Kevin ever gave a damn about Shion. What do you think? Because I've heard a couple of people argue this back and forth over the years. Uh, not a lot, because Zenosaga isn't one of the more talked-about franchises that I've encountered in geekdom. But... The idea is whether or not Kevin legitimately cared about Shion and Ergo would, would, you know, have the heel turn at the last minute, or if Kevin never really cared about Shion, that she was just another tool that he was utilizing. Now, the thing is, I don't think the, this is my opinion, but I don't think the writers had decided. I don't think they had really decided which of those perspectives was true. Because there is a pretty large amount of evidence for both. I mentioned there were two scenes that made me cry. One of those scenes is the scene where Alan stands up to Kevin. Yeah, really. Because it's a badass scene, and it's awesome. What we have is Alan, the normal, ordinary guy. The, the, the just the dude. Hang on, I wrote, I wrote down a note about it. Where is that? Where is that? Uh, Alan tells Kevin that all the Testaments were weak. And I love that. He says, because uh, he's right. All of the Testaments have grand, phenomenal cosmic powers, but in terms of will, in terms of mentality, in terms of emotional strength or maturity, all four of them have been weak. In fact, all four of them have been driven by the same thing, fear. And arguably loss as well. The, the pathetic man who has been the butt of every joke in the entire franchise refused to quit in in the face of the absolute, in the face of the tremendous power that Kevin had as a testament, and thus was able to withstand him. See, here's the thing. It's one thing to be able to just destroy your enemy. Um, it's another thing to know you cannot destroy your enemy and still refuse to yield. That takes balls. And I was just, yeah, come on, Alan. <laughs> and for me... That scene was all about the person who actually loves Shion, Alan, 
being willing to stand up for her, whereas the one who doesn't love her, Kevin, just being like, yeah, whatever. Let me put this to you another way. Let's say you're poor, and you see someone on the street, and you give them $10 or 10 euros or whatever you want to call it. And that's a significant amount of money to you, right? Because you don't have a lot of money. So that means a lot to you. Let's say you're rich, and you give $10 or 10 euros to someone on the, on the street. That doesn't mean anything to you. That, that means so less to you. That's just a pittance. Here you go. Why not? That's the dynamic I get between them. That Alan, who has nothing, cares tremendously for Shion. And Kevin might care about her in the same way that you might care about, you know, I don't even have a good analogy, um, a particularly nice stuffed animal, right? You don't actually care about it. It's just, it's just there. Something that's mine, right? This is, of course, then contrasted by the scene where he's like, no, I love her and I will do anything for her. I will stop you from tormenting her. We could probably reconcile these two perspectives of Kevin, but I really still feel feel like his sudden heel face turn at the end was just not very well handled. So... I'm just looking at my notes here. I don't have a lot to say about most of the characters. Nephilim implies flat out that Kevin is the one who's behind the acceleration of the Gnosis thing. That's another thing that struck me as very strange in this one. For some reason, and this is very similar to Xenogears as well. There's this recurring backplot about how the universe is dying. Like, they mentioned how, I think at one point, it's 80% of all Federation systems are gone, already consumed by the Gnosis. That's trillions of lives gone. And it's just kind of in the background. Zenigears does the same thing. It's just like, yeah, the world's dying, whatever. Everyone's dead. Uh-huh. Yep. Do-do-do. <laughs> you know? <laughs> it feels like we're, we're basically in the middle of the apocalypse. Or I should say, it doesn't feel like we're in the middle of the apocalypse, except we actually are. It's just weird. But anyways, so... Uh, I'm trying to think how to phrase what I want to phrase. Why is this the first game that really starts to examine the UMN as a concept? Like, up until now, everyone's just been like, yeah, it's there. And if you read the codex entries, they talk about it a bit. But for the most part, it's just kind of there. And everyone accepted that. Now, the UMN actually makes a weirdly large amount of sense to me. It's basically a sub-dimension, an attached dimension, because the UMN literally is, is built off of the backbone of the collective unconsciousness. Keep, it, keep that in mind, by the way, because it'll be relevant later. They don't say who built it, which is funny in its own right, because the implication is there that either no one built it, and it's just part of the world, part of the setting, I should say, or that it was built by the people back on Earth. There's several implications of, you know, oh, I was made by the ancient ones, you know, and they almost always mean the ones back on Earth when they say that. But we'll get to that later. We'll get to that later. I do like the idea of what is effectively instantaneous communication and matter transfer uh, as a consequence of how the Internet works. Not matter transfer, that's the one, but energy transfer. Instantaneous information and communication is an awesome ability to have in your fictional setting. I know that sounds like a weird thing to comment on, but especially in science fiction, where you're going across multiple systems, 
the delay in between communication time is something that's a real problem and something that most fiction basically ignores because it's not that interesting to send a message and then wait six hours and then get a reply and then wait six hours and so forth and so on. Even by Star Trek's own rules, that's how most communications work at extreme range because subspace transmissions still are only so fast. You know, there's still a delay on that. That's why Voyager can't just talk with Earth when they're off in the Delta Quadrant, right? So I'm with that, but having this instantaneous communication thing removes that problem. I can literally call you up and say hi, just like that. In fact, my only complaint is that when the UMN is gone, they use an electromagnetic communication, which, first of all, I'm amused they even have the equipment for that anymore, since that's centuries out of date at this point. But second of all, that it's still instantaneous communication. I know they're right there, but it would have been neat if there was like just a second or two pause, just to help add to the, to the nature of that. This also helps to explain why there's so many gnosis in the encephalon, because the encephalon is basically just <clears throat> diving into the the UMN, and the gnosis themselves are prolific throughout it. I mean, that's that's basically where they live in, in the lower uh, lower imaginary number domain or whatever the hell they call it. <clears throat> they call it the imaginary number domain. Anyways, um, it it reminds me a little bit of the life stream in a weird way, and I don't. I'm not accusing anyone of parroting anything or anything like that. It just makes sense to me that they would have a similar concept. Since first of all, the concept of the live stream is not exactly unique to FF7. And second of all, we know that some of the ideas that these people originally had when they started this entire franchise with Xenogears was some of the stuff they were positing for what would uh, what they wanted to be FF7 and was eventually uh, declined and they ended up making another one. But to me, that makes perfect sense. You know, you die. You go into the un collective unconsciousness. There is an implication that that unconsciousness then rebirths back. Now, that's never stated outright, but Wilhelm several times mentions, you know, this: if we save all those unconsciousness and rewind time, then we'll live. The idea being that those unconscious souls or spirits or minds or whatever you want to call them eventually get reincarnated back into people. We do know reincarnation is an actual thing in this as well, thanks to Shion in particular. Which uh, reminds me of the other thing I want to talk about, Shion. And, and I, I swear this is all getting somewhere. One of the things that I want to ask, I have my own answer to this, but it's pure theory. Why is Shion so relevant? Why does she matter? Why is she the one that so many of these events turned around? And if your answer is, well, because she's the main character, no, 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 insufficient. I mean, in lore. Why is she the one to be so relevant to so many different events across thousands of years? Now, the game, unless I missed a codex entry somewhere or something, never answers this. I know she was the Maiden of Mary, but that's not an answer. Why was the Maiden of Mary significant? Why was that relevant? Now, I do have my own answer, and you're probably going to make fun of me, and I almost guarantee this is not true, because this just doesn't really fit with the overall tone of the work. But it's an answer that I personally enjoy a great deal. That's why I want to share it with you. And as ever, I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts on this, uh, as in what you think the, re the reason is. I think the original Shion, the, the Maiden of Mary, was a statistical anomaly. I think that her brain pattern, her wave of her consciousness, because remember there's a whole bunch of things about the waves of people's thoughts and, and minds and wills in this, in this franchise. I think her wavelength somehow, by sheer luck, was mathematically identical to Udu's. And that made her significant. Because he, she was the one person Udu could naturally and smoothly connect with. 
Now, not quite communicate in the simplest and easiest way to say it, but in, in a way where Udu was capable of receiving information from her, basically. In a way that he it couldn't really from anyone else, right? Ergo, that's why she matters so much. That's why she keeps getting reincarnated back in, uh, you know, cycled back through the souls or whatever you want to call that. And that's why she is the one who causes two of the major moments of the game. Which brings me to my next point. I have to admit, in a series that has a few too many, oh, what a twist kind of moments, the twist about her summoning the Gnosis, that was good. Now, obviously, I knew that was coming this time around, but I remember when I first played this game, and I was just like, oh, my God, she's the one who did it. Holy crap. That got me, and that was a powerful scene. And what's really messed up, and this, again, goes into Kevin being a horrible person, is that scene was even more messed up when you think about it. See, back in the past, little Shion, she's going through some crap, and she's not really connecting with her father, and she can't even see her mother, and she's barely connected with her brother because he's off doing his fighting thing, which we saw in Zenosaga 2. Oh, by the way, Chaos apologizing to the time travel thing. That made me laugh. Anyways, so all of that, okay, yeah, whatever. And then she comes home and she sees her parents dead and killed by the Gnosis. Now that's, that's something that'll mess you up, and no mistake. Also, I have to admit, the English version with the, the blood uh, censoring is just hilarious. I've got to put it back as she looks at her empty hands. <laughs> but knowing that there's blood in her hands there, you know, I've got to put it back. That's just messed up. And her grief and her the shock of that just hitting her in a way that she would effectively blue screen makes perfect sense. And if she happens to be on the perfect wavelength with Udu, well then it now feels what she feels. And this rip in time and space opens up and the gnosis just start coming through. See? That was a powerful moment. But then it becomes even more powerful uh, the way it's presented here. Because time travel. Let's talk about the time travel section. <laughs> Don't worry, I will get back to my point. I gotta admit, <clears throat> I have two problems with the time travel section. First is the fact that they spend way too long, basically, is it actually time travel? What's actually happening? No, it's not. It's not. It's not actually time travel. Even though they bother to leave several hints throughout it that it is actually time travel. But, no, it's not. It's not actually time travel at all. The game flat out says that twice, actually, just to make sure. So that irritated me. The second thing that irritated me is it took too damn long. Um, it's funny because this has actually been a recurring complaint of mine in the franchise. They have these sequences. You remember in, uh, God, I can't remember if it was in one or two. I think it was in two. Maybe it was in one. Where uh, it's like, okay, we need, I'm going to die. Shion gets her red glasses thing. and says, I'm going to dive into Cosmos to find this memory. That was in one. That was in one. So I'm going to dive into Cosmos to find this memory thing. Okay. Oh, no, we all got sucked in. And then we just spend like several hours. In Cosmos's memories, it's a really weird expositional tool, and I feel like it's just a little bit too clunky in the way it's executed. I, I don't know. I don't again. I don't want to bash this game, but the whole time travel section, I was just like this. We got some good stuff with Virgil. That was good. We got some interesting backstory on Kevin, 
as I mentioned earlier. But it just kept going on and on and on and on and on and on in a game that, I remind you, was supposed to be squished. Again, I, I mentioned my theories on that earlier. Ah, so we go through this whole time travel thing. And uh, one of the questions I have for you, and I'm curious what you think of this, is we know it was a construct built to craft the, a situation, which I'm going to talk about in a second. They mention it might have been crafted from the actual souls or people's actual memories, because memories have a, a literal uh, relevance, I guess is the word I want to use, within this franchise. They've, they've already shown that, so that's not new. Do you think this is basically the actual, as close to the actual people that they're interacting with? The big, I'm, I'm probably, it's, it's so hard to phrase things in this franchise. What I mean is, it's possible that they've constructed this encephalon such that the people they're interacting with, at least some of them, were literally the people they were interacting with who have died, but they're reusing their unconscious spirit or soul or whatever in order to present them within the simulation. I don't know if that's true or not, but it's an interesting thought, and I mainly bring it up because of Joaquin, who really struck me as someone who, more than most of them, felt like he actually was affected by the events of the players being in the past more than anything else. Like, his interaction with Momo is a big example of that. Oh, yeah, that's another thing, by the way. Joaquin suddenly gets a huge amount of additional characterization in this game. I did like that. It's worth noting. Um, there's a little bit of inconsistency there, probably because the writing team changes I mentioned earlier. But Joaquin himself, I, I think it fits. Because what I see is someone who is well-intentioned and brilliant, but also unhinged. Someone who isn't quite morally stable. So I could see him being the kind of person who wants to do good things and tries to do good things and sometimes succeeds. And then there's something else. <laughs> Anyways. Uh, so then we have the scene where it all builds up. They have... This, this is actually kind of clever. In fact, this is really clever. This is another reason why I mentioned this is one of the better twists in the series. So we find out she's the one who called the Gnosis. She started everything, basically. She started the destruction of the galaxy. Congrats! Now here's the thing. Her knowledge of the death of her parents resonated so hard that it connected with Udu and the Gnosis summoned. Her knowledge of the fact that she did that resonates so hard with Udu that it summons Abel's Ark. Now, you could argue why those specific things happened as a result of our connection to Udu, and I don't freaking know. But I do like that that was the plan. We need you to feel that level of despair again, and it has to be real. So we're going to set up this elaborate thing just to show you a truth. A horrible truth. That should do it. <laughs> um... I'm looking at my notes here. Uh, I could talk about Telos, but I don't have much to say about her. Hi, I'm the better Cosmos. You know, I get that she's Mary's body. She's basically a cyborg, uh, but whatever. I could talk about Sellers. Let's talk about Sellers. What the hell's up with Sellers? I get the, <laughs> excuse me, I get the very strong impression that Sellers was supposed to be a larger character in the franchise. He's been present since the first game. He's been in the background a lot of times. We've seen how he was important to events, you know, 15 or 14 years ago. 
We've seen how he is important to multiple factions and organizations, how he's constantly betraying everyone, and he's only out for himself. But he's never really developed, and there's no conclusion to his story. I feel like he was a character who was supposed to be part of the extended episode 4, 5, 6 thing, and was just abandoned. Because this game especially really starts to bring Sellers into the forefront, only to abandon, only to drop him entirely. What do you guys think? Like, I don't even have much else to say about him. He strikes me as an interesting character, because he's not so much, I am evil, <laughs> as incredibly self-interested and very pragmatic. The idea of loyalty or duty or morality don't really matter to him. What matters to him is him and whatever is necessary to accomplish that. And I think that was a nice little uh, presentation of that type of character. Uh, I mentioned Yuriev. <laughs> Yuriev, I, I've really said all I have to say about him. He's just, I'm evil. <laughs> like every seat he's in, he comes across as evil and like cartoonishly evil. And then they're like, no, no, he's got some actual motivation and nuance to him, other people say. But then it's back to him. <laughs> um, there was a good scene between Albedo, uh, Rubido, and Gaiden, though. That was nice. I liked that dynamic. I like the idea of uh, Gaiden effectively using the body-shifting powers to shift Albedo into Rubido and then maintaining himself with Yuriev, thus destroying Yuriev, and ensuring that Albedo is, at long last, reunited with his twin. Uh, there's something kind of cool about that. And, of course, Albedo, who refuses to admit, I hate you guys, even as he goes out of his way to help them. You know, usual thing there. Um, I could talk about Grimoire. How many of you even know who that is? <laughs> He's pretty much the reason Nephilim is a thing. Uh, Almadel? Anyone even know who that is? Yeah, no, I, I'm not going to go into detail there, because what, what's there to talk about? Grimoire is a character who was in one of the side stories. I can't even remember which one off the top of my head, forgive me. And is actually pretty relevant, because again, Grimoire is the reason Nephilim is a thing, but they never really use that to anything. Nephilim is just part of the, is a conscious part of the unconscious collective. That's the best way I have of explaining what Nephilim is. She is basically the voice of the life stream. I know that's a weird way to put it, but whatever. It also helps to explain how she is able to manifest to certain people and how she has so much influence on things specifically regarding the unconscious wills. So, that makes sense. Um, let's talk about the Gnosis. Now, I've already kind of explained the Gnosis in previous videos, but what I find very funny is, and I didn't really realize this until replaying, they don't actually explain what the Gnosis are until this game. Until fairly far in to this game, actually. Like, I, I, I'm actually surprised they held on to that for that long. Up until now, it's just, there's some alien invading force. There's some doom in it. No, they're us. They're just us. And the end, I suppose? But I do want to talk about the notions. I know I'm kind of bouncing around here. There's a lot of flow of, of consciousness in this game. So I'm trying to follow it in a way that makes some sense for the video. So I hope you're sticking with me here. Let's talk about something of the ending. So the point of the ending, we've taken out Zarathustra. Oh, jeez, I can't pronounce it. Zarathustra? God, I can't say it. The thingy. We've taken out Z. And they're going to try and absorb all of the active notions, and indeed the collective unconsciousness itself, into this thing, and then they're going to send it off to Earth, which is off, lost, wherever. And possibly in an alternate space, considering some of the backstory, but let's not get into that. So that makes sense. 
you're going to literally remove the notions as a problem. The notions don't want to go. That makes perfect sense. So, here's what I want to know. Why... Why did I not give it the album? <laughs> I'm sorry, that's a terrible way to put that. There, Like I said, there's a lot of strong moments in this game. But pretty much the entire ending just felt like the game was trying a little bit too hard to make me care. And I'm confused by that. I've played through three of your games. I've, I've already care. You don't have to do this to me, game. Like, I actually uh, tried the time, but unfortunately I didn't get my timer started. But there's a scene where Jin has a three minutes and 40 seconds-ish saying goodbye to Shion and apologizing for being a terrible brother. And she apologizes for being a terrible sister. And just this last-second reconciliation between the two. While they are in a situation where every second counts and they're desperately trying to get away while they're desperately trying to fight off the notions. Like, it, it feels like someone just hit the pause button on the action so they could have an intimate moment. And then it dragged on so long. And so it's like, okay, yes, I get it. I, I get it. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's a shame, because I really like Jin as a character. I was moved by his death. He lays down his life in order to try and defend this endeavor. That's awesome. In many ways, Jin is arguably more heroic, of one of the most heroic individuals of the main characters. Not just because he, kill, he ends up laying down his life, but because he has been fighting for this since the original incident, which we saw in flashbacks, all the way back in the second game, right? I mean, this has been a thing this whole time. I love it. But... God, how do I phrase this? Do you think... Let's start with a question. Do you think the collective unconsciousness has actually gone away? Because that's the impression I got very strongly. That they weren't just sealing the gnosis, but they were actually sealing the collective unconsciousness away in whatever it is they were doing. Thus preventing... Wilhelm mentions that they've got a few tens more thousands of years before the universe self-destructs. Now, we get a couple of differing ideas of why the universe is going to hell. One of them is that it's the power of anima which makes absolutely no sense. And one of them is that it's the notions, which makes perfect sense. <laughs> you can see where I'm biased on this one. Because to me, if it's the power of anima, why? Like, they, there's a throwaway line, chaos says, it's my power, the power of anima was, was tearing the universe apart. Why? Also, if that's true, we have a bit of an, an, an inconsistency here. Because chaos and his power was not separated, or the anima was not separated, until Mary did that. That would have been about 0 AD, right? So unless this particular timeline had an extremely short build-up to that, his power should have already been shredding the universe, like, a lot before we got to that point. And Mary finally decided to do something about that. Also, no explanation of how Mary is capable of doing that or why Mary is superpowered or anything. She just is. Let's just accept it. Moving on. But that brings up another question. So... If it's not Anima's power, but Anima's power was accelerating the Gnosis issue, that would make a degree of sense, right? Like, maybe it's basically both. The Gnosis... The Gnosians? The Gnosis... I hate words like this, where it's just the same for its plural. The Gnosis are the actual cause of what's causing the end of the universe, but his Anima power was what was accelerating it. That makes sense to me. And that, that could kind of make both of these points congruent. But 
why God I like the idea even though that this obviously doesn't work I like the idea that chaos is new to this cycle so we know thanks to the ancillary works that this is not the first time through the loop that Wilhelm has reset time before we do not know how many times he has done this what's also interesting thanks to the ancillary works is we know Wilhelm's memory is reset each time the, in fact, everyone's memory is reset each time. The only one who retains full knowledge of previous cycles is Udu. Which kind of helps explain why anybody who mentally connects with Udu goes completely crazy. is because of the fact that they are not just seeing, you know, a, a wealth of information from an extra-dimensional being. They're seeing the light, the, the birth and death of a universe over and over. All that information just kind of... It also helps to explain why fear is one of the most predominant emotions from people who have interacted with Udu. But if I admit I like the idea of chaos being new to this cycle, but it still doesn't quite make sense if chaos's anima power is what's accelerating the gnosis to cause the destruction of the universe, because it would have to be there in every cycle. What I do like, by the way, is the idea of gnos uh, chaos, excuse me, being a good person because he was inspired by a guy. Something about that really appeals to me as a concept. That it's never stated outright, but the implication is that he met him and he was like, huh, this guy's got some really good ideas. Huh. And he kind of just decides to be a good person in honor of those teachings, in honor of what he was talking about. There's something just kind of neat about that concept. It also would help to explain why he went along with his power being separated when Mary somehow uh, managed to do that. Maybe Mary did that because of the Maiden. That, that might make sense, because Maiden has the, the connection thing. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> it's getting hard. This is, this is the thing I was always dreading about Zeta Saga. When it gets to the point where I'm having trouble getting across thoughts because they're so... <sighs> Here's a question for you. Um, what is chaos? I got a bonus one for you. What's Wilhelm? Now I know what you're going to say. Uh, chaos is the manifestation of anima, which is the power of the universe, and Wilhelm is the guardian of the lower domain. Okay, cool. What does that mean? To my knowledge, no explanation is ever given for either character. They're just there. Just accept it. I really would love to know more about that, especially since Wilhelm is, believe it or not, one of the more fascinating characters in this work for me. Um... I would say him and Sharon Goff back in episode one and Alan and Ziggy are probably the characters that really stand out most for me personally in this franchise. Because Wilhelm, he's a fairly classical type character, or classic, sorry, type character. There's nothing really new or dynamic about him. He is a guy who doesn't think the way we do and therefore is willing to do whatever it is in order to accomplish his goals. You know, he's basically the computer, right? But he has performed very well, and he's written reasonably well as well. Well as well as well as well. His entire thing where I am going to torture you. I will torture you forever until you do what I seek to do. Like, there's no malice there. There's no cruelty. It's just, I need you to do this. And it's worth noting, he tries to, to ask her first. He's like, I would like you to do this. No. Okay. Well, now I will torture you until you do it. Like, that's obviously wrong. He's still a villain. I'm not trying to, to whitewash that. But there's something engaging about that just utterly detached perspective. Because Wilhelm, his motives, if I could call them such, are very obvious. 
the equation must be maintained. The universe will be destroyed. That's, that's basically a guarantee. Ergo, I need to make sure to reset things. And according to the Ancillary Works, he has come to this conclusion independently every cycle. I have a small little side theory, though, that I'd like to share with you. And I admit, this is there's nothing really supporting this. It's just a thought I had. I like the idea of Wilhelm being someone who wants us to solve this universe destruction problem, but doesn't believe we can. He is the overprotective parent. And I know that's weird to say that after the torture thing, but you get my point, right? He does not think we as a species are capable of dealing with this problem. Ergo, he doesn't act as if that's a possibility. He just keeps going with his own plans. I'm going to make everything put into place. I'm going to be in charge of every organization simultaneously. I'm just going to keep doing my thing. Don't mind me. Don't mind me. Okay, we're ready to go. Let's reset the universe. Okay, universe is reset. And then he comes to the same conclusion again. I like that idea, though, because it adds a little, an extra wrinkle to his character. That effectively Wilhelm, <laughs> and this kind of gets into the uh, concept of ego, id, superego, etc., that Wilhelm wants to be overcome. That his desire, ultimately, is that these people, his children, su surpass him or surpass his methods such that they can accomplish something. And again, I love the idea that chaos chooses to help them in this endeavor because he met a guy. <laughs> something just wonderfully human about that. But that brings me to another reason why I think that this cycle is different. Why this is the first cycle that's not being repeated. And it's obviously the answer is because we're playing it. But what I mean by that is I think it's Shion. I really do think she was the statistical anomaly. That she wasn't one human out of trillions in this timeline. That she was one human out of quadrillions in all the timelines. That she was the first person who was born with that unique wavelength to connect with Udu, and that is why this timeline has gone so differently. Not necessarily because she's the chosen one. In fact, she's not the chosen one. She's not the fated one. She's not the destined one. She is, quite literally, an anomaly. And that throws the whole equation out of whack. My opinion. It also helps because it means she is not universally responsible for these events, but as a consequence of how people interact around other people. Basically, if you put a drop of something into a drop of other something, that's going to affect everything around it, right? You're changing the, the, the substance of what you're affecting there. So everyone was still themselves, but were acting differently because there's this new variable involved, if I'm making any kind of sense. Um, just look at my stats really quick. My stats, wow, my, my notes here really quick. So I mentioned the idea that they seal away the collective unconsciousness, right? Never quite finished my thought thread on that. Apologies. Where I was going with that is, to me, this is my headcanon, basically. To me, the idea here is, he's like, you need to go back to Earth and fix everything. I have no idea why Earth is significant. I really don't. I don't get why it's so super special to go back to Earth, but whatever. But you need to go back to Earth and fix this. Okay, and they have taken the collective unconsciousness and sealed it away back on Earth. Okay, that makes a degree of sense. But what I mean by that is I want you to imagine the collective unconsciousness as a... a server. Okay? Hear me out. 
and they have just unhooked all of the hard lines to that server. So the server's still there. All the information's still on it. All the people are still on it. But it is now detached from everything around it. No new information can go to it or come from it. That's how I think of what they did when they sealed it away towards the end of the game. But, thanks to what we understand for the nature of how this setting works, the idea still exists that when people die, they will still sublimate into the, the, the imaginary domain and basically start forming a new collective unconsciousness. And that that collective unconsciousness will, over time, start to spill over again and new gnosis will come out. This is, in my mind, why Wilhelm says, you haven't fixed this. A few more tens of thousand years and you're screwed. Because the idea here is that what, all we have done is bought time. We, we had a burning fire and it, it's been pulled over here, but over time a new burning fire will be made. I know that's a terrible analogy, but that's where I'm going with this. And that makes perfect sense to me. It would also explain why there would still be stuff to do in what would have eventually been episode four, five, six. You know, we now have to go deal with a permanent fix to this problem. We have to, we have to seal this, right? And I can't help but notice that this game ends in a very strangely similar way to Mass Effect 3. I know it always comes back to Mass Effect 3, but hear me out. We have basically just been through an apocalypse. 80% of Federation space is gone. Billions, if not trillions of people are dead. And we just lost the UMN. Which means we no longer have instantaneous communication, and we no longer have the same method of faster-than-light travel we used to. Now, at the end of the game, they have that throwaway line, which was very ham-fisted, about, yes, we're building a new network. And that's cool, and I like that. But basically, this is a, a what, I, what I usually call a setting reboot. The rules which govern the setting have changed significantly. The Gnosis had been removed from the equation, at least for the time being, and the Encephalon would basically be gone, right? And the ability to communicate instantly, the ability to have the Codex, the ability to transmit, all of that stuff, gone. So now we have basically started what is effectively a new rule set for the setting. And to me, that's awesome, because there's so much you can do with that as a concept. And I know it will literally never happen, but God, it'd be kind of neat if they ever did go back to Zenosaga and made Zenosaga 4. I mean, Xenoblade had some issues, but I still liked it, right? Come on. Anyways, I guess that is ultimately all I really have to say. Um, I guess the last thing I want to comment on, very, very last thing. There's a few scenes where it kind of just races towards the end, right? It's like, here's Margulis, and he's smacked down by Velhelm. Here's Pellegree. She was apparently Jid's lover. She's dead. Here's Voyager, afraid. Margulis dies lacking purpose. Now, as usual, Margulis is still one of my favorite characters. He, he, I don't want to connect with him, but he's still probably my favorite character overall uh, in the Xenosaga series. I bring him up because, to me, Margulis and Wilhelm are effectively total opposites in terms of their philosophy. And I think between the two of them, literally between the two of them, uh, in between the two of them, we have one of Zenosaga's overall thematic points. Wilhelm believed in the formulaic pattern, what you would otherwise call fate or destiny, which isn't really destined, it's so much as this is what's going to happen. 
because this is how mathematically things are likely to go. There's, there's no arguing this. The math supports it. Why are you talking to me about this? Right? Margulis believed very strongly in the concept of free will, of choice, of this is relevant to me because I choose it. And I can't help but notice that Wilhelm is more scientific and Margulis is more religious, but that wasn't the intention when I started making this comparison. Because it's all about that philosophy, whether you're religious or scientific, it doesn't matter. It's all about the philosophy of determinism or uh, self-determinism. And what we see in this work is that there are plenty of people who will do things that everyone can predict. And then there are people who do things that are completely out of the norm. And it is that variety of preference, that, that di difference in variance between the individuals that makes up the reality that we exist in. But there are some people who will choose the norm, and there are some people who will not choose the norm. And then there are thousands of people who would choose some variation in between, you know, bits and pieces of both. And that this crafts the overall weave of what we see of society, of people, of consciousness. And to me, that is the biggest takeaway from the Zenosaga franchise. The melting pot of chaos that is humanity, thanks to variance of preference. I hope you've enjoyed my look through this franchise. It has been a little exhausting, I'll be honest, but very, very fun. Um, I guess I will see you guys next time.